Our next guest is in Warsaw as we speak. Stephen Baskerville be talking to us about a very provocative article he wrote recently. And let me tell you that he is professor of political studies at the Collegium Intermarium in Warsaw. He is the author of many books and articles on politics, history, and law, including The New Politics of Sex, The Sexual Revolution. That's the last time he was on this show talking about that really important work. Also has written Civil Liberties and The Growth of Government Power. Stephen, it's good talking to you again. How are you? I'm well, thank you. It's good to be back with you. Hope all is well. How is life in Warsaw for you? Oh, it's, it's good, actually. Um, I um, actually work, work in Warsaw, but I live in Romania, so it's uh, on either side of a, of a rather unpleasant war at the moment. Um, but oh, so far, no. It hasn't touched us outside the borders of Ukraine and, and how horrendous it is for the people of Ukraine. Well, stay safe. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about this article that was sent to me we talk about the true origins of the deep state. Could you begin by, some of our listeners may not, they may have heard the phrase, but they don't know what it actually means. Start there, and then tell us, you know, briefly what the, what the origin is. Okay, well, when I use the phrase the deep state, I'm really talking about the whole, uh, what I'm trying to do in many ways is explain the events of the last three Years or so, and uh, the last three years, when the when the radical left, the far left, has really come to power in the United States, um, you know, with the beginnings of the COVID epidemic, and then later on with the uh, the death of um, George Floyd, and the uh, you know the violent uh, street demonstrations that surrounded that, really the the kind of coup d'état that they began pulling off roughly from early nineteen uh, early twenty twenty through the summer of 2020, and then with the, with the election of, uh, of 2020 and since that time. So that's what I'm trying to explain. Uh, now, many people, uh, you know, talk about the deep state and, and uh, as part of that. And, uh, you know, the the, um, the idea of, you know, the, the control of our lives by generally defined in terms of, you know, high bureaucratic agencies, and especially the bureaucratic agencies that control the, you know, the, the course of state machinery, such as the intelligence agencies, the police, the military and the, um, you know, the, the, the security and intelligence services. Um, so that's kind of the way I'm using it, uh, as you know, the, the control of people's lives by uh, by functionaries, by civil servants, um, bureaucrats, if you like. Um, and that's what I'm trying to explain: is those events of the last three years, but especially that, the control um, you know, of our lives. And, and most people do see this, you know, when they talk about the deep state, they talk about. You know, these agencies that, that have uh, a coercive jurisdiction, both domestically and, and in foreign policy. Um, but I argue that it actually goes back a little further than that. Tell us about that. You're basically saying that the creation of the welfare state set up the sort of deep structure in the government, which now has assumed almost dictatorial powers. Right. Yeah, I, I argue that the welfare state is really the, the, the model, the blueprint, uh, and that it was in fact imitated by the other agencies that we more often, uh, that we consider to be more obvious. Um, yeah, I say if, if the deep state is defined as powerful people using impersonal bureaucracies to control people's lives, um, or, or uh, to be more specific about it, uh, if you define the deep state as being cadres of, of civil servants forcibly controlling and manipulating the private lives of millions of non-criminal citizens, then the, then the welfare state was the first time we did that, and it uh, it was the, we did it to the poor. I mean, this is the, this was the American answer to poverty was the um, you know controlling the lives of the poor with uh, civil servants with, with apparatchiks of the state, um, and the, the American welfare state was somewhat different than the European. The Europeans created a kind of um, you know, broad-based social insurance programs for uh, middle-class people as well as for people of all, all incomes. Uh, but the Americans created something more specialized. It was a, a, a so-called safety net, the idea of you know um, a, a welfare state that was limited to the poor, uh, 
And for a number of reasons, I think this was not really very wise. Um, it was it created it created an underclass of people who um, I think in many ways were easily manipulated. Uh, people of lower income, people of less education, um, were more easily controlled by civil servants, by bureaucrats. It directly and, it uh, directly impacted direct- the family, right? Exactly. It had, well, that's yeah. That was the next step. Was that it was a, a control of people's not just their lives by by bureaucrats and civil servants, but by their their private lives, and the you know, the welfare state in particular took control of the children, of the um, of the poor, and to some extent, other you know the elderly as well. But but really, the children were what was important, and they um, you know the welfare state had a devastating impact, especially upon the African American family. And other minority families, other low-income families, uh, it um, you know it created this underclass. They say of the of uh, you know fatherless children, um, often embittered single mothers, and uh, often criminalized fathers, uh, so vilified certainly vilified fathers. So it it had this horrible impact. And the other thing was because it did it, it, it was limited to a, a specific sector of the population, the low-income. The rest of society could just ignore it. We just, you know, we said, well, the poor are being taken care of by the welfare state. That's that. Um, private charity increasingly, uh, you know, dried up and was, was displaced by the welfare. The, you know, Christian charity, what had previously been, been done by the, by churches and by, um, by volunteer women, for the most part, uh, had run the charity programs. You know, the private charity had been run by churches and volunteer women. And what was crucial... Uh, I argue about this was in the days when uh, charity was run by uh, churches and volunteer women, they refused. They didn't just supply people's material needs with you know with money and food. They also enforced Christian sexual morality, and the, most crucially of all, they refused to uh, condone single motherhood. You know, we all know from the, the novels and the you know the films we've seen about it that. You know, these days, the churches and, and the, and the, um, you know, the, the volunteer women worked for them would, would not condemn single motherhood. They were very, very insistent upon that. Well, when they were displaced and replaced by professional paid civil servants, social workers, um, exactly the opposite uh, incentive started operating. The, the civil servants had a vested interest in, uh, procure, in, in encouraging more single motherhood, encouraging... Single motherhood went from being an evil to being a, a, a positive good, because single motherhood. Yeah, so there was a feminist element. There was a feminist element, right? Absolutely, there was. I was going to get to that, but even well, there was a combination. It was a bureaucratic element and a feminist element, and they dovetailed with one another. I mean, just in simple bureaucratic terms, all civil servants, it's hard to say, have a vested interest in creating more of the problem that they're supposed to be celebrating, they're supposed to be addressing. I mean, this is just, you know, I, I call this the iron law of Washington, that, you know, anyone who's paid to solve a problem has a vested interest in, in even more of the problem they're supposed to be solving. So the paid social workers had a bureaucratic interest in, uh, you know, in encouraging more single motherhood, for its own sake. And... Uh, Consistent with that, dovetailing with that, was the ideological element, which, as you say, was was, was radical feminism. And the social work uh, profession was dominated, if you go back to the very beginning, the pioneers of social, professional social work by Jane Addams around the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, were steeped in, uh, you know, uh, anarchist and uh, communist socialist ideology. And so, of course, feminist ideology. Uh, and... Um, they, uh, you know, that only grew over the decades uh, with the New Deal, and then especially in the 1960s with the Great Society program, these, these anti-poverty programs uh, uh, exploded with the Great Society, and uh, you know, they became very, very ideological. They became dominated by radical feminists, and they, uh, you know, what they, what they became very anti-male, anti-father, and um, again, you know, the, the, as bureaucrats, but also as ideologues. The social workers were very, um, you know, they didn't want fathers in the home. The famous uh, man in the house rule, which everybody thought was so crazy and made absolutely no sense, and yet it continued decade after decade. The, the rule that said that, you know, to receive welfare, 
payments, the only eligible recipients were, were single mothers, effectively. And if there was a father in the house, a breadwinning father, then, then they were. We think, though, of the deep state, I think most people do, is the kind of thing that might have been behind the Kennedy assassination, things like that, or the or the deep state that is uh, constantly, you know, pushing for uh, military action overseas and so forth. Are the, these are you saying these things are all connected? I do believe um, that there are connections between these things, and the reason is. Because uh, I, mean, I don't doubt for a minute that those things are also involved. Um, I can't prove that, that all that, but um, I prefer my explanation is not mutually exclusive of that. But I prefer an explanation which gives us all a little bit of um, a role in this, because I think we all have a role. I, I try to avoid explanations that maybe sound like conspiracy. There is even even if there really is a conspiracy, and and you know in the case of the Kennedy assassination, it looks like there really was one. So I'm not denying that there that what people call conspiracy theories can turn out to be true. I'm, I'm not denying that for a moment. Um, but I do believe that there's an element of this that we all have some responsibility for. And I like to, I like to for people to start looking at this in terms of you know what did we do. Uh, where did we all go wrong with this? It's not just nefarious people pulling strings behind the scenes. They may be doing that, but if they're doing that, we let them do that. And, um, you know, I like to keep those kind of things in mind. What did we do? What did we all do that we could have done differently, that we could go back and rectify? And I think that this is one thing that we all have some responsibility for. We basically wrote the poor off in this welfare machinery, and it's coming back. And a lot of what's happened in the last three years has been because of the destruction of the African-American community, especially because of the destruction of the African-American male, who I think is a pivotal figure in this. And, you know, we, we use um, the death of George Floyd or this, um, what's named Tyre Nichols in, in Memphis. Um, you know, their death, and this is supposedly evidence of racism. Uh, and um, But in fact... I think what it's evidence of is the destruction, the degradation, really, of the black male. And the programs that they use to, they rationalize, they use, you know, the George Floyd's death and, and, you know, all the talk of racism. But what they're doing, in fact, is they're using these, these incidents to uh, erect programs, social programs, that have zero benefit for black men. The, the great society programs of the 1960s did no good whatsoever for black men. The, 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 the social work programs of, of, the, of the New Deal of the great society, these had zero benefit for black men. These enabled the, these, these enabled the, the, the emasculation of black men. And, you know, emasculation has been a prominent theme of African-American literature for decades, going back to before, well before the 1960s. Um, so, you know, there's another dynamic here that's, that's operating. And I think, um, you know, I think people need to, to look at that as well as the, you know, the so-called conspiracies, which may, yeah, may again be very real. You talk about in detail about how this arrangement of elevating the mother, the single motherhood, the, uh, the criminalization of the father, uh, has affected the young men. Could you go into that a little more? Because what we're seeing are are young African American men. They're not the only ones, but many of them are. You know, their hoodies over their face, and they're they are terrorizing storefronts and even people in their cars. Absolutely. No, there's no there's no doubt about that. And there's no point in covering that up either. It is happening. But again, uh, where, where I would there's several several points of connections there. And several connections with the deep state in the more conventional sense in which most people think of it. You're right. Uh, you know, the destruction of the black family is is the root of the you know the criminalization of uh, low income adolescents, um, black adolescents and others, and, you know, the low income communities. Um, they are completely dysfunctional. If you look at the at the, uh, I shouldn't say they are. They, the most dysfunctional people come from these communities. Some rise above it. Some, you know. 
pull, you know, they're, they're able to pull themselves up. But, um, you know, we know that fatherless communities uh, are, the, are the source of most social pathologies, violent crime, uh, substance abuse, uh, you know, delinquency, um, dropouts, truancy, um, sub- all these things are, are, are being, uh, you're right, horrendous crimes are being committed by very young people, uh, very young men, for the most part, adolescents, uh, carjackings by, you know, 14-year-old boys and things like that. It's absolutely hideous, and there's no point in you know, covering that up. Uh, so you know, it's awful. But if you also look at the um, you know the other another side of that is the you know the, the horrible injustices uh, of the criminal justice system. I mean the way that um, you know the the, the way that um, the criminal justice system you know in America is notoriously um, unjust. Uh, the way that uh, ordinary Americans, especially low-income Americans, are railroaded into prison. The, the use of uh, you know, the jury trials become almost a thing of the past. I, I wrote about this, by the way, in an earlier Substack column. Um, the jury trials become a thing of the past. It, it's been replaced entirely by plea bargaining, which amounts to a system of extortion. Um, you know, there are there are trials by uh, you know that last uh, thirty seconds to two minutes, uh, during which time you know young men are sentenced to, to years or even decades in prison, for oftentimes forced labor. Uh, without any uh, real trials, oftentimes without any uh, record of their incarceration. But, again, to return to the family, most low-income black men, for example, are incarcerated not for violent crime at all. Uh, most of them are actually incarcerated for non-payment of child support, which, again, wow. is, a, is another another subsidy on the, the welfare state. It's another way of paying for uh, you know single motherhood in the welfare state. So they're basically paying for the, you know, as one author says, the filching of their own children. Uh, and they're basically reduced to slavery. Uh, in many ways, the, you know, the whole child support system is, uh, is a system of slavery and forced labor. Uh, it's, it's, it's just unbelievable that the adjudication of it is just, uh, um, just unbelievable. There's just some robotic prosecutor shows a, a bunch of numbers to a robotic judge, and the robotic judge issues an order locking up a dozen more people. Um, so it's it's uh, you know all of this this feeds into this 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 horribly unjust system. Uh, so it's you know so between destroying their families and uh, consigning them to this to this you know a, a criminal justice system which is more injustice than justice. Um, you know we're basically destroying the lives of young black low income men before they've even begun. And I think, um, you know, liberals have obviously ignored this when they go on a rant on about racism, but I think conservatives have also ignored it. I think conservatives bear some culpability for this because they, you know, instead of pointing the finger to the family, this family destruction, which I think would have given them enormous political benefits if they did that, but instead they just talk about law and order and, you know, locking up more people. I know I was I was advising President Bush about, the future of Social Security. And because, as everybody knows, it's going to run out of money, not too distant future. And so he was trying in a second term to to fix that. And, I mean, his attempt to fix that just crashed and burned because nobody on Capitol Hill wanted to get the reputation nationwide that they were going to somehow harm their social security payments now wouldn't aren't we just kind of stuck with the welfare state as we have it yeah that's a very good question um no i don't think we are necessarily um what's very interesting about that is uh, the way we've, we've definitely lost interest in it we've, we've just stopped talking about it um but that doesn't mean the problem has gone away and this is very interesting to me uh, i think what happened if you go back a few years um and I read this actually on the account by Phyllis Schlafly, of all people. Um, she points out that in 1965, the Republicans um, actually favored cutting off welfare benefits to um, unmarried mothers um, for the, because it encouraged you know, the breakup of families. And if you go back before about the 1990s, almost everybody had bad things to say about welfare. Conservatives didn't like it for, for the reasons we all know. But liberals also didn't like it. Um, Patrick Moynihan, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, issued a famous statement in 1965 saying that, you know, creating all these fatherless homes, uh, you're just asking for trouble. You're just 
dressed for chaos. And sure enough, half a century later almost, we've got exactly that. The, you know, the chaos multiplied several times over. So liberals like Moynihan were also very concerned about um, welfare, and, and even Marxists. If you go back, even even radical Marxists didn't like welfare because they said it would, you know, it would buy off the working class, placate the poor, and dampen their, you know, their revolutionary fervor. It was the way of, you know, um, bread and circuses. So everybody from the right to the left all agreed that welfare, and everybody thought that, you know, handouts, government handouts were demeaning, which of course they are demeaning. So, um, so what happened? Why everybody wanted to get rid of welfare for somewhat different reasons, but everybody agreed that this was something that was, you know, shouldn't continue. What happened to that? Why did that anti-welfare consensus disappear from about the 1990s? Well, one reason was because President Bill Clinton, you know, pretended 1996, and that was pretty perfunctory. It didn't really do very much. But the larger reason, and that coincided with Clinton's welfare reform, was that the feminists began to assert themselves uh, as the matriarchs of the welfare system. And they were the ones, again, that turned wealth into a positive good as a way of, uh, lib- of empowering women, ostensibly empowering single mothers, but even more so empowering themselves, the, you know, the, social, the, the feminist social workers. They were the ones that were really empowered. And um, what they... Uh, and also, it, it also they, they were celebrating sexual liberation. Which of course was the welfare state also does. It's it's the epitome of sexual liberation. It, it pays people to have children out of wedlock, and it pays people. It pays for it subsidizes sexual uh, you know sexual libertinism. So the feminists thought welfare was a wonderful system. They get to run it. They get to take control of it. They, they get to encourage single mothers, which would give them more jobs, and more remuneration, and they would. Uh, you know, uh, unleash sexual nihilism, which is what many feminists believe in. And what's even more, what's even more decisive is that the feminist social workers also, from about the 1990s and onward, had begun what amounts to quasi-police powers. They became plain, plainclothes police. And the way they did that was through programs, administering programs that were uh, ways of dealing with the chaos of single-parent communities, welfare communities, and those are the programs dealing with uh, um, child abuse, domestic violence, and child support enforcement. All three of these had their origins in the welfare system. Um, They were all machineries that started in the welfare system. They later spread to the middle class because of divorce, but they started out in the welfare system. And so the feminist social workers became police. They were able to not only uh, hand out money, they were able to exercise police powers, and they, those police powers, first of all, they displaced the fathers because they were, they took over the father's role of protector and provider. Now the protectors and providers were, were the social workers. But more than that, the fathers became the targets of these police powers. The fathers were the ones that were accused of being, you know, batterers, child molesters, and, and deadbeat dads. So suddenly the fathers became villains. It was at this point, because before when they had the man in the house rule, everybody was you know, nobody, there was no need really to, to, to vilify the, the men. But now that the feminists took control, they began vilifying the fathers, calling them dead, you know, the same men who had been, uh, under Marxist ideology, these men had been, you know, the victims of capitalism and racism and, you know, militarism and all the other bugbears of the left. Suddenly they became the villains. <laughs> they became the, the batters and pedophiles and deadbeat dads. And the feminists, you know, and, and we know what happened. After that, if you look at, you know, that was the origin of the, of the things like the Me Too movement. The feminists were so successful in vilifying low-income black men as pedophiles, deadbeats, and, and, uh, and batterers that they began using it elsewhere. They began, uh, you know, university students found themselves on trial for rape and sexual assault. Soldiers in the you know, famous tailhook affair and others in the military uh, military servicemen were also found themselves accused of all kinds of sexual this and sexual that. And, and later, of course, politicians and celebrities and whistleblowers uh, with Me Too when Me Too was formed. Uh, you started getting accusations against, you know, Brett Kavanaugh when he was up for the Supreme Court or against Julian Assange when they were trying to uh, get him for, for blowing whistles or the Duke of York or the um, 
you know, Epstein or who are the others. Um, uh, you know, so so all of this, this this politics of accusation, which is epitomized in the Me Too movement, this also had its origins in, in, in the in the welfare system. Um, it was also, you know, they had tried, they had, they had worked out this, this system of accusation on, on young, relatively helpless, low-income black men, and it worked so beautifully, why not use it against everybody else? And that's, that's what they've been doing ever since. You talk about the role of uh, sexual liberation that was supercharged by this welfare state. Could you explain how that happened? Yes, it's, it's very much so. Um, uh, it's the welfare state, uh, of course, um, encourages uh, single motherhood. It encourages, um, uh, you know, there's no particularly benefit. Well, it, coupled with things like the no-fault divorce laws, which kind of came later and spread it all to the middle class. But already there was no, you know, no requirement of getting married before. Um, before you have children, and of course, married couple, unmarried couples, and notoriously um, unstable households. Um, so the you know the feminists found that they could um, uh, you know th- this would encourage sexual freedom, sexual liberation among low-income women. What's interesting, and I, I haven't re- I, I'm writing about this in the forthcoming um, post, but it's very interesting uh, is the way that white middle-class feminists started looking at the black, low-income women with envy. With envy, because all during these years, we're talking here about you know, the years of the welfare state as it grew up in the 40s and 50s and 60s, you know, white middle-class women were um, you know, living lives of great, enormous affluence. Uh, they certainly weren't, uh, they were certainly weren't uh, oppressed in any sense, but they were increasingly bored. They were bored, and they were bored, I think, especially with their lives of chastity and, you know, sexual fidelity. And they looked at, uh, I can show you quotations from feminists in front of me, uh, of white middle-class feminists starting, I don't know, around the 1990s or a little earlier, uh, where they express envy uh, and admiration for low-income black women. And I think I quote uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, a famous and yeah, influential um, socialist feminist, and a, a book of, uh, of um, essays that she and some other feminists edited, where they say, quite frankly, I've got some other quotes along the same lines, but um, where she says that, um, you know, uh, um, low income, you know, um, uh, where's the quote? Um, even, even, even poverty, even living in poverty, you have sexual freedom, more sexual freedom than you do in, in, in uh, monogamous marriage. Um, so, you know, it's better to be poor but sexually free. These are, these are middle-class women talking, saying this. It's better to be poor uh, but sexually free than it is to be, um, you know, affluent and comfortable but sexually um, sexually faithful, uh, sexually, you know, sexually chaste. Um, and this is, uh, this is an extraordinary statement. Um you know, for, for, for anyone to make, uh, especially for, for middle class, someone in the middle class to make about the poor. But, but you could see this. This, this was very much uh, something that, um, uh, here, here, here's, here it is. They wrote, they wrote, um, independence, independence, sexual independence, even in straightened and penurious forms, even in poverty, they wrote, still offers more sexual freedom than affluence gained through marriage and dependence on one man. It's extraordinary, you know. At least the poor may be poor, but they're sexually free. And you can see, um, why is it that, you know, in in the days of welfare reform, before, again, roughly the 1990s, you know, the main purpose of welfare, everybody thought, was relieving poverty. Right. We're supposed to be helping the poor. How much do you hear that nowadays? We hear almost nothing about poverty or the poor. Um, It's all about, you know, the, 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 um, you know, child abuse, battered women, and um, you know, it's all about the, you know gender 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 conflict, um, the war between men and women. So it's it's really uh, the, fe- the feminists were the ones that hijacked the welfare state. Uh, they commandeered the welfare state and turned it and changed it from a, a a machinery that was supposed to be relieving poverty into a machinery that would that would um, empower, as they say, empower um, 
women uh, sexu- sexually and, and, and materially. The is there is there an all a way up and out? Well, that's a good question. Very question. How do we? Get, I mean, you you um, you you know, in all of your work, Stephen, you've thrown tremendous light on the ills of our nation and culture. You know, especially surrounding the family. Where is there going to be a? Uh, when is there going to be uh, a turnaround or a remedy at all? Right. Well, um, I think there are. I think one one thing we have to do, as always, is we have to understand you know, what happened, where it came from, and explain some of these myths. Um, but I think one silver lining I see in this is that of all people in our society today, I think in many ways the young black male, even though I think he's pivotal, and I think he's in many ways the canary in the mine shaft, and his his degradation really led the way to the you know the decline of our entire civilization. Why is at least American in the United States? But I think in some ways, if, you know, if, if black men were to look up and stand up and say to the left, in particular, you know, you do not speak for me. <laughs> you know, your your anti-racism and anti-poverty programs don't do me any good, um, or 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 the community, you know, black, black communities. I think the young black males were to stand up and say that to the left. I think they would have enormous moral leverage. I think they'd have way out of proportion to their numbers. Their their impotence, their their you know their degradation would turn around and become, to use that cliche, empowered, because they would have the moral authority to say to the left, you know, you don't speak for me. But also, I think they would have to at the same time say to the right, to some extent, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be a pawn in your games either. Um, and there's a little, I think there's that for me to be said, because I think some of the established right, established conservatives also uh, want to, you know, use black people as their own, you know, to, to turn it around, become the mirror image of the left. So I think that there, that's one one silver lining I would see as example. Um, Hold on your second, uh, Stephen. Hold on, we're going we're gonna to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I am back with Stephen Baskerville, who's talking with great insight about the origins of the deep state, which were found in the welfare state, and what, if anything, can be done about it. Stephen, do you think the people in the deep state and run this, are in charge of this incredible power, do you think they really believe what they're doing is, is good for country and good for families? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. It is hard to know. Of course, there's many. Or they do it because it's just it's just there to their benefit. Yeah, well, there's several different aspects, of course, of however you define the deep state. I think oftentimes, you know, in in, in bureaucratic settings, it's very difficult. You get a certain momentum uh, dictated largely by the bureaucratic self-interest of the people involved. In other words, the you know the self-interest is to is to deal with problems in a certain way that lead to more problems and keep everybody going. And a per, even a conscientious person, even a, a person who wants to come up with real solutions and do so in a conscientious way, is under tremendous pressure to um, you know, to go along with the group think uh, and uh, and do things according to the you know the, the momentum and the, and the self interest of the bureaucracy as a whole, and uh, or the party as a whole, or you know the, the group. So it's very difficult for even a, you know, a, a conscientious individual to to go against the tide, and you know we see this sometimes with you know, someone like maybe Julian Assange or you know the various whistleblowers who do um, speak out on these problems, and yet and they are you know they become uh, you know everyone goes after them, they become victims themselves of of this, and then they're vilified in the media. So it's it's very difficult to. Um, you know, to, in a sense, it almost doesn't matter what they're, you know, what they're thinking because there's nothing they can do about it, even if they, even if they have a conscience. 
you got to wonder because such, because I mean you have this uh, press secretary in the Biden White House who just bold faced lies and lies and misrepresents and then is is indignant when the press calls her on this. Uh, do you think do you think the general public, insofar as they even pay any attention, do you think they buy this? I, I don't think they do. No, I think there's a lot of areas where the public doesn't buy it, but unfortunately, most people don't pay a lot of attention to public affairs. They pay even less attention to foreign affairs or anything to do with you know, security or the military. Um, and these are things that many people just, it's not on the radar screen. And the default position is to accept what the, you know, what the state says. And you're right. I mean, the, the line in the last three years, especially, has just gotten has just gone over the top. The media, you know, the lies, and not just not just the state itself, but the, you know, the, the media has become increasingly um, integrated into the into the state structure. The the non uh, you know the nonprofit sector, the non so-called NGOs, and you know pressure groups, people that we were told were public interest law firms and things, you know, uh, are, are part of the. Um, you know, the state's inseparable in many ways. The state structure, they're funded by the state in some ways. Uh, so-called NGOs, they're non-government-funded you know, government NGOs. Uh, you know, it's a contradiction in terms. The media, of course, was supposed to be non-part, not part of the state. And the academics, uh, who are supposed to be not part of the state also. My own field, um, you know, the, the, the uh, you say the, the mendacity, the lies, it's not entirely new, as I'm, I'm trying to work I'm trying to show in some of the essays that I'm working on now, but it has become flagrant in the last last three years. And I, I would like to share some of the antecedents, some of that where that came from. That that if you look at the things I'm saying about the welfare state, um, you know, again, if you go back a few decades, uh, the media, the academics, there were serious attempts by serious scholars to reform the welfare system. Uh, but nowadays, uh, nobody speaks against, nobody dares say a word against it. Um, for fear of being labeled racist or sexist or misogynist or homophobic or whatever, um, so it's um, you know it's gotten. Um, I think in many ways the you know the the the, the, the professional line that you see that you speak of um, also has its origins in many ways in some of those um, events of the 1990s. The uh, I mean I'm to the point I don't know where you're getting your news every morning because you're in Warsaw. But whenever I look at any European publication, I don't see any truth in their reporting about the United States at all. No, there isn't. There isn't any. The European media is is, uh, is very weak at the moment. Um, yeah, I think I mean, there's some dissidents in the, in the United States. You know, there's some... People, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson or a few others like that that were, <laughs> um, but uh, there's almost nothing like that in, in, the, in the media in the UK or in continental Europe. Um, most of the media here, e- even in countries like you know Poland, Hungary, uh, Romania, where most of the people, most of the you know the grassroots population has very little sympathetic with woke sympathy with woke ideology, with you know sexual liberation, with LGBT stuff, with uh, you know, all of this stuff. There's almost no sympathy among the people, and yet the media uh, is, is full of it. Uh, the media is in many ways uh, trained, the media are trained in many ways in uh, by, the, by the West and funded by the West, by George Soros and people like that. The academic class here is, is trained also in the West and funded by the West. So they too, um, you know, they, the European media, high media, and academics are are very very similar to what you see in the United States, and very little dissent. Um, so it's it's very sad to see that um, because Europeans, and especially here in Eastern Europe, um, the, the the mass of the population has no sympathy with this whatsoever, and yet the the media and the universities are full of the same kind of fads and the same kind of woke ideology that you see in um, in in the Western world and the U.S. So, for example, in a Catholic country like Poland, and I'm assuming it is still fairly Catholic, am I right? Yeah, yeah, it is. In some so what do they think of America? 
Um, yeah, good question. Um, there, there is, there is a certain sense. I think I think there is a large sense in, in many of these countries that uh, you know, the hierarchy is um, decadent, is you know sexually sexually decadent, and and um, uh, of course there's admiration for certain American ideals, um, and uh, you know admiration for the especially the economic ideals, the prosperity, the strength, the power of the United States. But also, uh, at the same time, you know, the feeling that this comes with, um, you know, a price. And, uh, you know, many Europeans don't, uh, again, I can only speak in, in Eastern Europe, um, but they, you know, these are still Christian societies with very strong family values. And they, uh, they're they not accustomed to standing up and, um, uh, you know, revolting against their governments and against... Um, but they are, but they are grumbling. I think to a large extent about um, their governments being lapdogs of the of the United States of, of the you know current Biden administration and the and the fads that come out of the United States. The, you know the educated classes. Uh, how much? I mean, I I see, or at least I see reports of strong. Catholic influence on politics in both Poland and Hungary. Are, are we to believe that? Is it really Im- still impacting the culture? I think it is. Um, yes, I think it does impact the culture. It doesn't always translate into the most um, effective political policies, government policies. Um, sometimes it's, it's more uh, action. Um, I see that a lot in Poland, especially. Poland is very, uh, yes, it's a very conservative Catholic country, but the government and the, and the current ruling party in Poland is, is strongly Catholic and, and uh, you know, traditional values and that. But I think a lot of their policies are um, more talk than action. For example, I, you know, one of the things they've been pushing is this idea of paying people, paying families, like they were trying to do in France. Um, I don't think that's the best way to deal with the family crisis. I don't think that's an effective. I think it's more you know, kind of a um, you know a nice show. It sounds good. It makes everybody feel good to pay people money from the government to to have more children and raise the birth rate and restore the family. I I don't think that's the most effective way of going about it. Do you have any identifiable Catholic intellectuals in Poland who can? Say, be on the front page of the newspaper or some popular magazine. Oh yeah, there are. Um, there's um, people like, um, oh yeah, there are. Uh, what's his name? Ricard. Um, and though yeah, they um, they really have uh, some pop when it comes to uh, being a public voice. Yes, there certainly are. You know, public intellectuals in, in Poland and in Hungary, especially who have been outspoken. About some of these issues, um, the problems are that I think there's a tendency among Europeans, especially European conservatives, to kind of follow the American or Anglo-American lead. They tend to adopt the talking points of the um, British and American conservatives, who I've I'm actually myself becoming very um, Critical of. I mean, my argument is that they, you know, in the last three years, they've basically lost. I mean, the Americans, you know, the American conservatives have basically, you know, handed victory to the left, to the extreme yeah, left, who's in power right. now. And so, um, you know, I, I, I don't know that they're necessarily the most um, efficacious model or you know role models for the European conservatives to be following. I think, in some ways, you know, the Europe, Eastern Europeans should stand up and start exercising a more proactive, muscular leadership um, and, uh, you know, sort of kind of traditional values rooted in both the Catholic and Orthodox churches and Protestant churches, too, sometimes. Um, um, so, uh, you know, I, I'd like to see a little little more of that. I tell them, I said, you really shouldn't be deferring to the British and the Americans so much. Uh, you've got your own traditions here, and, and uh, they need to be stated. Um, so, uh Stephen, we've got a few yeah. minutes left. You mentioned at the top of our interview that you've seen firsthand some of what's coming out of Ukraine. Could you share some thoughts on that? Well, 
yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a horrible situation. Um, I mean, it, it, in many ways, it, it illustrates. I mean, when I say firsthand, the only thing I've seen here is, is uh, in both Poland and Romania. I, you know, I hear Ukrainian spoken on the streets, and I, I see families um, that are being, um, you know, helped, for example, by, by various churches and things. So I, I don't have firsthand knowledge of what's going on in the country of Ukraine. But, um, I mean, this in many ways illustrates, I think in many ways, uh, some of the things that I've been saying. Uh, um, I think most people, uh, in, certainly in Romania and Poland, uh, have very strong doubts about, you know, this war, where it came from. Um, there's no love for Vladimir Putin and the Russians, but for historical and contemporary reasons. But there's also, um, I think, increasing skepticism that the, um, the Americans have not been forthright in the development of this war, and the Western Europeans in particular, the Germans and the British and the French, uh, have been, again, very obsequious, servile followers of policies made in the United States, uh, and that this, you know, this war um, could have been avoided, uh, and that it could have been... Um, you know, the, the loss of life uh, in Ukraine has just gone way beyond any justification for, um, you know, for, for for continuing this. And that really the, you know, the Americans, the Western Europeans, all of us should be should be pushing um, both sides to sit down at the table and, and just, you know, for, it's basically humanitarian. Or at this point, I think that's the way most people see it. It's a humanitarian crisis more than anything. And the, and the top, the, the main priority issue right now has got to be just to stop the killing. Stephen, how can people read more of your writing? I, I believe you had a website. Could you tell our people, our listeners about it? You have a website. It's www.stephenbaskerville.com, which is uh, Stephen with a PH. And uh, that's where a lot of my books and um, major articles uh, in the last uh, few years are, are all there. Uh, I recently started this Substack um, column. Uh, it's an experiment, of course, as it is for most people. I find it very interesting. I'm getting very good uh, responses. I'm building a, looks like I'm building a readership fairly quickly. So I plan to, to maybe use the Substack a little more. I'd like to consolidate these articles into a book. Um, but um, my most recent pieces, I did some pieces on these themes in Chronicles Magazine recently and Crisis Magazine. Um, which were um, listed on the web on my website, so uh, you can find most of my stuff there. So you're getting an, a, a following. That's excellent because I want to repeat what I've said before about your book on the new politics of sex, the sexual revolution. That it it remains to me one of the best treatments of sexuality and and the cult the culture sort of drowning in it that I've ever read and I'm, I don't I haven't seen anything since that is better than that book do you get much response to that book if people contact you I get a response to it I find that a lot of people um, seem to miss the point uh, I was just reading tonight a couple of books new books on the sexual revolution one from the left and one from the right both of them critical of the sexual revolution from the, from the left as well as the right and yet none of them really come to grips with the arguments that I raise in the book. I find that a lot of the approach on the, on the right is very, um, again, very stagnant, very boilerplate. You know, we, we talked about the, the sexual revolution um, uh, and, and things like uh, ideology. I was just talking tonight about the Istanbul Convention, which is certainly a product of the... Of the um, a good show could be done on that. Uh, uh, which is certainly a product of the sexual revolution. And, you know, conservative groups have been critical of the Istanbul Convention because it's, uh, you know, it pushes gender ideology, which is certainly true. But there's many layers of, there's layers of, of, of destruction. There's layers of, of negative things about the Istanbul Convention at a deeper level that the conservative groups often just miss. And, uh, I find this very disturb, dis, dis, disconcerting, um, that, you know, I think a lot of it, one of the things I talk about a bit is that you know the, the takeover of our politics by professional lawyers and lobbyists and um, you know the political class on the right as well as on the left, and uh, I think um, you know we need to get back to a kind of citizen politics where people are getting more and more. We have more multiplicity of views on some of these things because our debates are becoming very sterile and counterproductive.
They are. And uh, do you think that, uh, do you think the, um, the American bishops, do you see any sign that they're ready to stand up and take their proper place in being, you know, pub, not necessarily public intellectuals, but public theologians addressing these core issues in our culture? Yeah, I, I, I don't. I, I find this very, very sad, very disconcerting. Um, is the absence of, um, uh, well, the absence of actually, you know, you know churchmen uh, standing up, you know, churchmen in the mold of John Paul II or, you know, Richard Wurmbrandt or Cardinal Mincenti, uh and standing up and, and, you know, standing up to the state, to the state power. Um, and, yeah, I think, you know, the, the replacement of, of churches, churchmen with, with uh, lawyers, frankly, and uh, professional lobbyists, a professional political class. I think this is one of the most serious problems we have in our in our political civic culture. Um, and I, I'm I'm going to I'm writing about that a bit uh, in, in my Substack about how this. I think we, um, uh, in many ways, we've been sold out by the political class, uh, the professional politicos, uh, both the, the left and the right, have colluded oftentimes more than they have. Um, you know, more than they have uh, really uh, represented the rest of us. And, and we've well, let them, I, frankly, I we've let them to, do that. So we, we to blame our, we're all to blame. I want to remind our listeners that your website is stephenbaskerville.com and has all kinds of wonderful uh, material. I think I'm just looking at your gentleman's guide to manner, sex, and ruling the world. I believe we did a show on that, too. Oh, right, yes. Yeah. It's a work I did for fun, but it, it also has well, serious points in it as well. It's, it hits home. So, Stephen, thank you for taking time out from Warsaw late at night, I assume, to be on Church and Culture, and I hope to have you back in the near future. Well, anytime. It's a great pleasure always to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. You and to all of you who are listening, uh, I'll be back next week at this time on this day. If you have any comments or questions about church and culture, you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.